Welcome to the December 2018 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. This month, we are discussing a paper which will appear in the January issue of the journal. Is there a risk for the epidemic of legal and illegal opioids consumption to extend to Mexico? Is this risk only a Mexican problem? Or would a Mexican epidemic have consequences in the United States too? My interviewees are Dr. David Goodman Messer from the Division of Infectious Diseases at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Then Professor Larry Palenkas, who is chair of the Department of Children, Youth and Families at the School of Social Work of the University of Southern California in Los Angeles too. And then Professor Stephanie Strathdy, she's the Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. I am Alfredo Morabia, the Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and we are November 5th, 2018. I'm reaching out now to David Goodman Messer. If I understand you, there is a need in Mexico for more, for a greater prescription of opioids for people who have pain, because uh, the coverage is, is less than half of the, the people who need it currently. Is this true or, or not? Yes, you're entirely right. Um, Mexico traditionally has been a country that has, has been of low-level opioid prescribing, And this was really highlighted by uh, um, Human Rights Watch in 2014 um, and other publications, a special report in The Lancet um, and by the um, World Health Organization, that many people in Mexico were dying um, or suffering with chronic pain, especially in, in situations like terminal illness. Mexico is changing with their... Um, develop uh, economic development. So 20 years ago, Mexico's primary burden of disease were those of infections, diarrheal infections, respiratory infections. Now, the primary burden of disease in Mexico is that of the developed nations. So chronic degenerative diseases like diabetes, heart disease, musculoskeletal diseases, depression, all of these diseases that can promote chronic pain. The other side of the issue is that Mexico is uh, getting older. We expect that the population above 65 years of age will double by 2030. With this doubling of the older population, we're going to have more chronic degenerative diseases and more malignancy. So demand is going to definitely increase. And so, so you, we have this situation with, with an actual real need for uh, pain prescription in Mexico. And, and uh, the, the Seguro Popular, which is a kind of uh, national health insurance, right? Yes. Um, so since the early 2000s, 
Mexico has has moved uh, towards a quasi universal healthcare system. Um, traditionally, Mexico had a very a, a model very similar to Germany's, where you would get your health insurance from your employer. Uh, but it came to the point where about half of the population was not employed or was employed through non-formal means. So they weren't getting, um, they didn't have a national coverage uh, or a, a health insurance coverage. So since uh, the early 2000s, the Secretary of Health uh, and started what we now know as Seguro Popular, that covers all of the people that are outside of the employer-based healthcare, which is called El Seguro Social. Mm -hmm. So if uh, opioids becomes more available in Mexico, uh, since there is this type of uh, national insurance, a lot of people will have access to them, right? Yeah, so, so that's one of our fears. And this has only become recently that opioids entered into Seguro Popular's, what they call it, cuadro básico, that these are the group of medications that are covered under their, uh, their package. As David states it, there is a need in Mexico for more opioid prescriptions for people who suffer from pain. But what is the risk that responding to these needs spills out into a major epidemic similar to the one that occurred in the United States? I am asking this question to Larry Palenkas. So in your editorial about the paper by uh, Goodman, Mesa and Al, Uh, you say Mexico provides a case study for the potential for the opioid epidemic to go global. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Well, um, so in, in many ways, Mexico is an illustration of how the global supply and demand for both prescription and illicit opioids is likely to lead to the expansion of the epidemic beyond the confines of North America. Um, as the availability of prescriptions for opioids in the United States and Canada begins to dry up uh, due to increased regulations and education of both patients and healthcare providers, the pharmaceutical industry is going to be looking to establish new markets to replace existing markets that are stagnant or diminishing in size. So low and middle income countries like Mexico are prime targets for market expansion. Yeah, but These Larry, countries... Larry, just, yeah. just a, a point here. Uh, traditionally, Mexico has been a country with very low uh, heroin and opioid consumption. So how would they mm -hmm. do that? Well, um, they're doing it in a variety of ways. One is by... Um, facilitating um, changes in uh, the availability of opioids, the use of opioids by providers, um, and uh, uh, the restrictions that currently exist uh, with respect to the administration of opioids for uh, control of pain, um, such that uh, uh, it'll be much easier for them 
to uh, provide uh, a, a steady supply of opioids with fewer restrictions or regulations. But they're also actively engaged in increasing the demand so that uh, whether directly through their marketing efforts or indirectly through exposure to uh, global media, uh, patients are going to be more accustomed to the idea of routinely using opioids uh, to control chronic pain. Physicians are going to be more uh, willing to um, prescribe opioids for this purpose. And the laws that currently exist, uh, which limit uh, opioid prescription, are uh, essentially going to be uh, subject to a heavy lobbying activity by the pharmaceutical industry. So we are talking about really the, the, the risk or a pending epidemic of prescription prescription opioid, I mean, legally obtained opioids for Mexico. Mm -hmm. Yes, but uh, the drug, the opioid epidemic is not merely one of prescription opioids. So while historically use of uh, illicit opioids uh, has been quite low in Mexico and elsewhere, uh, the use of illicit opioids like injectable heroin, for example, has also um, been low. However, we're beginning to see uh, an increase in illicit opioids uh, as well as prescription opioids. And it seems that one follows the other. So the, um, uh, it, particularly in the instance of the uh, uh, parts of Mexico that border the United States, where uh, the Availability as well as the demand for illicit opioids seems to be greatest in Mexico. An important element mentioned by several of my interviewees is that the risk of spillover into an epidemic of illicit opioids is exacerbated by the growing use in all of Mexico of heroin, even though Mexico has been a country traditionally with low use of heroin. And what's the relationship between this situation, which is the, in some ways the real demand, and uh, the market uh, for illegal opioids like heroin in Mexico? Yeah, so Mexico has now become, in parallel to the U.S. opioid epidemic, Mexico has become the number one importer of heroin into the United States, surpassing the Southeast Asian cartels, surpassing the Colombian cartels. So with that increase bringing heroin into the United States, there's more production in the uh, southern Pacific states of Mexico, like Sinaloa, uh, Nayarit, uh, Oaxaca, Guerrero. Um, and with that, there's also been more trafficking um, across the, the, the Mexican mainland to the United States. So with more production, more trafficking, there's going to be more availability. Um, and we can see these microepidemics of heroin use at the northern border, which have been well documented in cities like Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez, and Hermosillo. Um, so this intersection of an increasing illicit opioid market 
with the possibility of a prescription opioid market could be very damaging to the country. Stephanie stresses the fact that deportations from the U.S. are exacerbating the drug problem at the U.S.-Mexican border. Well, what's interesting is that we found in some of our early research here on the border that HIV risk was uh, accelerated among deportees. Um, And in particular, uh, male deportees from the United States that had been sent to Tijuana uh, who were injecting drugs were at much higher risk than um, people who'd been living in Tijuana their whole life or had moved to Tijuana uh, from other parts of Mexico or South America for um, for voluntary reasons or fleeing um, violence. And this was a surprise to us initially, but then when we looked deeper, we saw that this group of, of people, mostly men, are very unstably housed. They Many of them um, have gang involvement. Um, they were uprooted from their lives in the United States. They were living uh, mostly as undocumented in the United States, but they, they did call the U.S. their home. Many of them didn't even speak Spanish and um, were uprooted and dumped unceremoniously in Tijuana where they had no um, identification, no job, no um, social ties except back home. And so they started to get into drug use, um, some of it for their own um, you know, mental health issues, depression, loneliness, isolation. But some were already um, you know, substance users in the United States, but only their problems got worse. And this group of men um, primarily were living in the Tijuana uh, River Canal, were getting involved in the drug trade, the sex trade, um, and um, the problem is getting worse. It's it's like our U.S. immigration policies are actually exacerbating some of the drug problems and the associated health problems like HIV and tuberculosis and hepatitis C in the border region. And so what's the proportion, would you say, that develop a, a new addiction when deported and, 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 and back in Mexico? Well, that's harder to discern because um, some of these um, men um, have addictions to heroin um, and uh, before they're deported, but when they arrive in Mexico, they may add um, a new addiction, methamphetamine, or they may have been addicted to heroin or a casual user of heroin but not injecting. Um, but when they get to Tijuana, all of a sudden they um, find that heroin is in short supply, they don't have any money, and they start injecting it because that's the most efficient way, unfortunately, to use a drug when you don't have much money. And this leads, obviously, to all sorts of other health problems. Um, as we see that the, the um, drug policies in Mexico versus the U.S. are diverging with partial decriminalization of drugs um, that has occurred due to the narcomenudio in uh, Mexico, which is the federal uh, legislation that was passed in uh, a couple of years ago that allows people to carry small amounts of drugs for personal consumption. Whereas in the U.S., we have more of a militarized, um, criminalized approach. Now, with the new uh, government coming in in Mexico, the intention has been stated that there would be full decriminalization of drugs. And if that is the case, we could see more divergence between the two drug markets and more drug tourism from the U.S. to Mexico. 
and of course, we know that there's uh, heightened deportation and preferentially people who are um, having a, a criminal background. So it's creating a perfect storm. And um, I think this is a situation where you see our immigration policies and our drug policies are colliding. However, as mentioned by David, there is a changing opioid consumption market in Mexico. Yes. Um, well, I think that we've seen that um, over time that, that uh, opiate use and the health problems that come with it, like HIV, follow drug trafficking routes. And um, so the drug markets have been changing because of warring cartels. And um, also, some of, as we've just talked about, some of our immigration policies in the U.S., have been sending people from the U.S. and preferentially those who have a criminal history of drug use and many who are addicted and sending them back home. Um, and for a time, the Mexican government was actually sending them to their birthplace. So uh, they could take uh, the person could be deported to Tijuana, but they're actually from Sinaloa. So there was a busing system to send them to Sinaloa, even though they have no contacts there. So it's kind of, um, in a way, I hypothesize that this is populated, um, you know, the country in terms of new uh, risk behaviors that people haven't seen. And the spillover from these um, drug trafficking routes has created local consumption markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And now the situation is that we have a national uh, consumption, uh, even if it's limited, but it, it covers the whole of the country of heroin, and this heroin is locally produced. And so it's uh, accessible. So now we have set the problem. Let's see if there are ways to prevent the impending disaster of a Mexican opioid epidemic. I asked Larry what he thought were the preventive measures that had to be taken in priority. What can we do to prevent this uh, epidemic to occur, since it's not here yet? <laughs> well, certainly there are a number of evidence-based programs and practices that target prevention of drug use in general and opioid use in particular, and many more are currently underdeveloped. So uh, the National Institute of Drug Abuse has given this very high priority. Um, these include um, the Centers for Disease Control and Discipline-specific guidelines for managing patients who are opioid tolerant and or have a substance use disorder, uh, psychoeducational programs for patients that emphasize the role of opioids in recovery after surgery or for treatment of chronic pain. Um, there are a number of education programs for the prescribers of controlled substances, including clinical and regulatory aspects. Um, nowadays, um, many of the surgical specialties are uh, issuing recommendations for opioid-naive patients, people who, you know, had uh, previously not have any experience with these forms of medication. Certainly, um, external and international organizations, the World Health Organization, um, can exert a very powerful voice in um, identifying uh, uh, health care policies uh, that target prevention, uh, that target uh, specific health problems like opioid abuse, 
Um, and whether it's uh, governments like the United States or Mexico or you know any number of uh, other governments, they do tend to listen to ex external agencies uh, like the WHO. Uh, similarly, um, medical uh, bodies, uh, the AMA, for example, um, the uh, American College of Surgeons and their counterparts in Mexico also have a very important role to play, not only in the establishment of policies and guidelines, but the enforcement of those policies and the development of strategies to successfully disseminate and implement those policies. In the end, the best form of prevention, I think, it really lies in understanding uh, and addressing the socioeconomic factors that contribute to the risk of opioid abuse. So whether it's poverty, extreme income inequality, and, and fostering a health promotion culture of opioid use that really consists of a, a shared set of knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors that really dictate both the, the necessary and appropriate use of opioids. I then ask the same question about the measures to be taken in priority to Stephanie, but from an American perspective. What do we need to do now? And Stephanie, do you think that the Mexico is doomed to get this uh, prescription drug epidemic, or are there ways to avoid it since we have this perfect storm coming? Well, I think there needs to be more awareness of the health risks of drug use, and um, there, but most of all, there needs to be more uh, harm reduction and, and drug treatment available, and uh, both are in very short supply. So, for example, it's very easy to get heroin or methamphetamine or crack or even fentanyl these days um, in the, the border cities. But if you want to get into a methanol program, that's another story. Uh, so it shouldn't be easier to get the drug than it is to get methadone. We've got to solve that problem. And I know that the Narcomunudio legislation intended to expand drug abuse treatment, but that's been very slow. So that needs to happen. And, um, you know, I think that harm reduction, including needle exchange programs, um, naloxone, um, all of these kinds of, of other programs, um, including services for deportees, um, because uh, if we don't provide them with services, it's going to just blow back um, and, and cause more problems in the U.S. It's naive mm -hmm. to think that we can just deport our problems away, and neither country really wants to take responsibility for this population, which is growing and which is really creating a, a destabilization of, um, you know, in terms of the risk factors for drug use in the border and beyond. In the end, the U.S. and Canada are just as interested as Mexico in preventing the epidemic because the prescription opioids will reverberate from Mexico to the north. Before I wrap up this podcast, let's listen to Larry, Stephanie, and David's conclusion. While the opioid epidemic has uh, up until now been uh, confined to uh, Canada and the United States, uh, the assumption being that uh, high-income countries are at greater risk, we're seeing that as it spreads to low-income countries due to 
the pharmaceutical industry seeking new markets as well as the drug cartels seeking new markets that that will eventually reverberate back to high-income countries like the U.S. and Canada. Well, I think it's just really important for American citizens to realize that Mexico is um, our neighbor and uh, that we have a shared population and a shared border. And so health problems that occur on one side of the, uh, of the border are not, um, you know, going to be separated. Uh, they are going to impact the other side. And so if, if drug policies, drug markets, um, opioid use, prescription drug use, HIV, TB, sexually transmitted infections, all of those things um, are a consequence of some of our policies. And so if we put the onus of responsibility on individuals, we'll, we'll never see a change. But if we look at the underlying drivers of some of these, uh, you know, real epidemics, I think that that's where the change could occur. I really hope that this does not happen. I really hope that Mexican providers can still be alert to the risks and dangers of opioids, that policymakers can maintain barriers to the extensive use of prescription um, opioids in Mexico. I think that right now Mexico is in the 1980s of the U.S. epidemic. It's not here yet, but everything is colliding to create it. I think Mexico has the opportunity to implement different public health strategies to mitigate any possible opioid epidemic. I think the introduction of opioids or the scale-up of opioid use in Mexico is very important to treat those patients who need um, opioids for treating malignant cancer pain, for example. Uh, but we need to be very cautious in that scale-up, and we need to be able to implement stre preventive strategies and treatment strategies um, to mitigate any harms that opioids uh, most um, may present to the community. So let's wrap up. There is a threatening but preventable epidemic of consumption of legal and illegal opioids in Mexico. And this threat is due to a paradoxical combination of factors. On the one hand, there is the new Seguro Social, a progressive insurance system even compared to Obamacare, which is likely to respond to the need of Mexicans who suffer from painful disorders. But on the other hand, there is a risk of a spillover effect, similar to the one that occurred in the United States, because of A, a growing use of heroin in a country traditionally with low use of heroin, B, deportations from the U.S. that aggravate the drug problem at the U.S.-Mexican border and contribute to disseminate the heroin consumption throughout Mexico, and C, the temptation for the pharmaceutical industry to make the highest possible profits in Mexico. It is not too late, 
and it is in the interest of the United States and of Mexico to prevent this epidemic. The most urgent measures consist of training doctors, informing patients of the risks, and reducing deportations. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Francis Jacob prepared the tribute to a song from the 70s about the despair of opioid addiction. Pauline Jacob sings lyrics written by Mexican artist Ramiro Gamboa, which say, I got your message, you say you're feeling bad. I love you, honey, can I have a bag? Oh, I can't go back. I got to town, I saw you feeling low. I saw how your dreams drowned in snow. Oh, I can't no more. And in Spanish, the lyrics goes like that. Recibí tu mensaje, si suenas mal. Te quiero, mamita, con todo y chiva. Ya no puedo más. Subí a la montaña, ahí te encontré. En tus ojos vi la nieve y resbalé. Ya al fondo llegué. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on your Android or iPhone podcast app, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or on Stitcher. That's it. Thanks for listening. Con todo el chiva, ya no puedo más. Subí a la montaña y te encontré. En tus ojos vi la nieve y resbalé. Ya al fondo llegué. Dream.